0: Hey, welcome. Welcome. Good to see you all this morning. Um, my name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the part of the teaching team here at SRP. It's great to have you here. If you're just joining us as a guest, we love you and we are glad you're with us. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. Um, it's going to be on page 547 in the House Bibles. 547 in the House Bibles. If you're just joining us, uh, we are in week 4 of our sermon series in the book of Romans. And today we come to one of the most difficult sermons that we'll have in the course of this series. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 24 to 32. It's not actually a hard text to understand. The main idea is very straightforward. But it is a hard text to preach. Especially in our particular cultural moment. And the reason for that is not because of the big idea of the text, but it's because of an example that Paul gives in what he says about homosexuality in the passage. This text is not primarily about homosexuality, but Paul does say some important things about homosexuality in this text. And there's perhaps no more charged cultural issue right this moment than the issue of gender and sexuality. That's the culture we're living in. And so for that reason, this has been a hard sermon for me personally to prepare and this is going to be a hard sermon for some of us to hear this morning. I felt the weight of this morning for the last several weeks as I've been studying and getting ready for today. And uh, even as I stand in front of you this morning, I still feel the weight of that. This is a heavy thing for us to talk about. This is one of those texts that if, if you're just um, picking topics to preach on, this is one of those texts you probably avoid most of the time. But here at Park Community Church, we have a conviction that the full counsel of God's word needs to be heard by God's people. Like if if you're new here this morning, you need to know that what we do here at our church, one of our convictions is we're going to preach through entire books of the Bible. And as we preach through entire books of the Bible, we're going to come to texts that are hard for us to hear. That are going to be difficult for us to receive. And though some of those texts that we encounter are difficult to receive, one of our other convictions is that God's word is good and is for our good. And so even when we come to a text that is hard for us to hear, it is always good for us to hear. And the book of Romans and and the Bible as a whole, this book, it is full of good news. And we need to hear all of that news, okay? And just a heads up. Some of what we're going to talk about this morning, it's going to be adult conversation. I'm looking around, I don't, I don't see any kids right this minute, but, but if your kids are in here, this would be maybe a great time to take them over to our wonderful children's ministry over in E3 down the hall. Um, they take, take great care of your kiddos, and so I uh, might want to encourage you to take them down there. Now additionally, uh, after the service today, What I'm going to say is going to raise lots of other questions. We don't have time and space to address all of it. And this conversation happens really fast culturally. And so there's going to be lots of questions. And so after the service, uh, Pastor Jason, myself, uh, Phil, Adams, the three of us are going to go down to the community room down the hall. And we're going to have a time where you can ask your questions. um, Where we can have a dialogue. And we would invite you to come down to that. Um, Up on the screen behind me, there's going to be a phone number that you can text questions to. And anything that you're wondering, you want to ask it anonymously, you can text to this number, and we'll, we'll discuss it down in the community room afterward. Okay, so I want to invite you down to that to talk more. All right, so the title of the message this morning is How the Fall Affects Us All. How the Fall Affects Us All. I'm stealing that title from a sermon by a guy named J.D. Greer, because I think the title captures so aptly what this text is all about. And along the way, I'm going to borrow some insights from him. Some of my thinking has been shaped by, by that particular sermon And so that's where we're going this morning, how the fall affects us all. So that said, just stand with me and read from God's word. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we'll start in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Fathers, we come to this text today. We ask for your help. Your word is good, but some of what it says can be hard for us to hear. I pray you would give us ears to hear this morning. I pray you'd give us a humble spirit that we'd be able to listen and hear from you this morning, God. And would you teach us, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat. So the first thing we need to do this morning is we need to understand what exactly God is saying in these verses. You've seen on the slides over the last couple weeks the subtitle, The Vast Separation. The first four chapters of the book of Romans are all about this vast separation between God and people. Last week, uh, Jason walked us through verses 18 through 23, where we saw that what people do, what we do, is we suppress the truth about God. We know at some deep level, deep down, that God is there, but, but we don't acknowledge him as God. and extend, Instead, we exchange the glory of the creator for images of created things. So we swap out God and we replace him with idols. And as a result, we face his just judgment for our rebellion. Now in the text we just read, what we're seeing is how exactly God's judgment gets revealed in the world. We see the outworking of God's wrath in the world today. And what we see is actually this three-step cycle that repeats three times in these verses. So walk through this text with me. Step one. Step one is what we'll call a tragic exchange. A tragic exchange. In verses 21 through 23, we see the first step for the first time. People, claiming to be wise, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of created things. In verse 25, we see it again. People exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then in a similar vein, in verse 28, we see people don't see fit to acknowledge God. We refuse to recognize him for who he is. And so the first step in this cycle here is our refusal to recognize God and then this tragic exchange that happens when we turn from him to idols. And this is largely what Jason walked us through last week. This is the root of all that is wrong in the world. What's wrong with the world? This. God made us to have him at the center of our lives and our world, but we've rejected him and we've replaced him with other stuff. And the truth is that all of us have done this. Whether you are religious or not, you've got something in your life that you are worshiping. The Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who who is not a Christian, he says it well. He says it this way. He says, there are no true atheists, practically speaking. There are those who acknowledge the gods they are worshiping and those who do not. So you might not be bowing down to Jesus or to Buddha or to some statue of a bird or an animal. But your heart is bowing down to something. Wealth or power or romance or prestige or self, something. And even if you're here today and you've been in church your entire life, so often what happens is you start looking to things other than God for your deepest satisfaction and salvation in life. One of the most convicting moments of my life happened when I was a college student visiting this church in Cincinnati, Ohio i had been checking out Christianity for a little while at this point and investigating it and, and thinking about things spiritually. And I go to this big church one Sunday and there's this fiery preacher marching all over the stage. This passionate communicator and he's, he's preaching the daylights out. And, and, and I don't remember much of what he said that day. I remember his passion and I remember this moment. I remember him vividly remember him talking about the fact that all of us, we hold on to things that keep us from holding on to God. We hold on to things that keep us from holding on to God. And I remember him going like this, and he said, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? What are you holding on to? And I remember sitting there as a college student and looking at him, and I knew that what was in my hand was a basketball. It was a basketball. I had made an idol out of this sport that I played. It had become my identity, my all-consuming passion, my, my place I went for hope and joy and satisfaction in life. Basketball was my idol. I wasn't bowing down to a statue of an animal. I was bowing down to a little orange ball that could never save me, could never satisfy me, could never rescue me, could never meet my deepest needs. That's what was in my hand. And that's what happens in the tragic exchange. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things instead of the Creator. And so this morning, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? Your career, your family, your resume, your bank account, your popularity, your hobbies, your relationships. What is in your hand? That's step one. Here's step two. God gives us up to what we prefer. Look at verse 24. Therefore, so in light of verses 21 through 23, as a result of the tragic exchange, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, so because of verse 25 and the tragic exchange there, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you see the repetition here. Three times here we see that because of the tragic exchange of step one, God gave them up. Now the verb gave them up here, it means to hand over, to deliver. So God responds to the tragic exchange by handing us over to what we prefer. This is how God's wrath is expressed right now in the here and now. It's not fire and brimstone. It's God playing Burger King. He says, you can have it your way. So we hold on to these other things and God says, okay, you want that instead of me? Fine, you can have it. If you think those things can really satisfy you, if you think that's the way to life, fine, go ahead. You can do it. You can have it. Have it your way. To use a famous example, it's like people are like a boat out on the river of our own desires. So so like we are this boat, and we're floating on this river that is made up of of what we want. And it's like God goes and he he just kind of pushes us out into the current and lets us float on downstream. He says, go ahead, try it, see how that goes for you. Now none of this is to say that God causes people to sin. He does not cause people to sin. The people he's handing over here are already out on the river in the first place. So God is just letting us go where we already want to go. And so basically what happens here in these first two steps of the cycle is it's like this. It's like, it's like little earth is flying out here in orbit around the big old sun. And little earth looks up at the big old sun and says, Hey son, I want to be in charge. I want to be in the center. I want to run the show. I want to call the shots. And the sun, after all this badgering and all all this pleading, the sun looks down at little old earth and says, okay, give it a shot. Fine, see how that goes for you. You try it, have it your way. That's step two. And that brings us to the third step. And in the third step, what happens is what you can imagine would happen if the little old earth replaced the big old sun in the center of the universe. The earth lacks the gravity, the weight, the strength, the power to hold everything in place. And so everything starts to unravel. In step three, what happens is that people act out externally and bodily the internal spiritual condition of having a fallen human soul. We drift down the river as we live out all the effects of the tragic exchange. And what Paul does in step three is he highlights some particularly clear examples of how that happens in the world today. And the point of these examples is not that these things are sin. They are sin, but that's not the point he's making about them. The point is that these things are the results of idolatry. These are the things that happen when we cling to created things. And we try to find meaning and significance and satisfaction and life apart from God. In other words, these are the symptoms of our rebellion against God. So in verse 24, first example, he talks about the lusts of their hearts, impurity, and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The language he's using here, it refers to sexual impurity in general. This is any kind of sexual activity outside the context of one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant marriage relationship. This kind of sexual impurity was rampant in Rome where Paul's writing to. And it's rampant in our world today. So this would include a boyfriend and a girlfriend sleeping together before they're married. This would include hookups. It would include looking at pornography. It would include fooling around with somebody. It would include uh, entertaining lustful thoughts. This is any kind of sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Now to be clear, this is not an indictment on sex. Y'all, sex is a good thing. God created sex, and he gave it to, to people as a gift to enjoy. Like, he's the one who put all those tingly nerve endings in those really sensitive parts of your body. That was God's idea. He designed that stuff. In fact, do you know what the very first command God gives to people in the entire Bible is? It's Genesis 128, where God says to the first man and woman, He says, be fruitful and multiply You know how you do that? Go have sex. The first command in the whole Bible is go have sex. So God is not anti-sex. The Bible is not anti-sex. Sex is not the problem here. But what we have done is we have taken this good gift from God. And we've turned it into something that we worship instead of God. We've made sex into an idol that we must have at any cost. And our idolatry, what it does is it leads us to impurity. And so we end up, we settle for a few moments of ecstasy instead of a lifetime, an eternity of intimacy with our creator. So the first example that Paul gives of how, this is the first example uh, that Paul gives of how we live out this tragic exchange. It's our sexual impurity in general. You see the second example in verses 26 and 27. Now these two verses, they make up the longest and clearest passage in the Bible on homosexuality. There are a total of six texts in the Bible that explicitly talk about homosexuality, and this is the longest and the clearest of them all. And historically, the church has not done a great job talking about this. And we have done an even worse job of caring for people in the LGBTQ community. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the first thing we need to do right now is we need to try to humbly and faithfully understand what exactly the Bible is saying on this point. So in verse 26, Paul says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You'll notice the recurrence of the word dishonor from verse 24 above. The dishonorable passions that Paul is describing here, they're a subset of the general impurity that he already just talked about. So just like sexual impurity in general, what we see in these verses is likewise dishonorable. This is not something that God approves of, or condones, or affirms. And what is being described here in verses 26 and 27 is same-sex sexual relationships. In verse 26, Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. This is referring to lesbian sexual relations. In verse 27, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. This is referring to gay male sexual relations. So Paul says here that one of the results of displacing God in the center of our hearts and our lives is that we develop unnatural sexual patterns. So Paul describes same-sex sexual relationships here. He uses the language of, of them being contrary to nature. And when he's saying that, when he's using the word nature, he does not mean what comes naturally to any particular person. He's not talking about your going against your personal nature. What he's talking about in the context of this whole flow of the argument is the natural order of things, the created order of things, the way God the Creator created the world to work, God's design. And that natural order, when you look at it, it requires these complementary pieces of male and female. God could have created us where we, we subdivide like amoebas. That could have been the way that we reproduced as a people. But He didn't. He made us to complement one another, male and female. That's what's natural. And Paul is saying that same-sex relationships go against that natural design. Now Paul is not picking on homosexuality here. Paul doesn't, as one scholar puts it, Paul doesn't bring up homosexuality because it is a greater sin than any other. But because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. Just as in idolatry you turn away from God... In, the same, in a same-sex relationship, you're turning away from God's created order. That's the point Paul is trying to make. Now to be fair here, I want to address one of the most common objections that gets raised at this point to what I'm saying. There's some who have tried to argue that what Paul has in view here is only certain kinds of promiscuous homosexual acts. Things like prostitution, one night stands, uh, masters forcing slaves to have sex with them. Or practices like pederasty, which is where a man would have a young boy as kind of his personal sex toy. Those were common things in the ancient world. And, and some will say that that's what Paul's talking about. And so the problem Paul's describing, they would say, is, is lust more broadly and not just homosexuality. So Paul doesn't have a problem with homosexuality in general. He has a problem with, with lustful homosexuality. That, that's, that's the argument they put forward. And part of that argument is then the claim that Paul Paul was actually unfamiliar with the kind of committed, sacrificial, loving, same-sex unions that we see today. And and they'll say um, all Paul knew was the promiscuous stuff. And if he had known about the kind of committed same-sex relationships that we look at, he would have made a distinction between the two. And I get why people want to make that argument. I understand that. But there are two major problems with it. First of all, You'll notice in verse 27 that the men were consumed with passion for one another. So this is a mutual, consensual thing that Paul is describing. And then second of all, the argument that Paul wouldn't have known about loving, committed, same-sex relationships, it's simply false historically. Historically. If you look at Greco-Roman mythology, literature, and pop culture, you can find numerous well-known examples of committed same-sex relationships. For example, Plato, in one of his works, he talks about a well-known Greek poet who had a lifelong consensual relationship with another man. The famous 2nd century scholar Ptolemy of Alexandria, he refers to women taking other women as their lawful wives. And then Plutarch, who was another 1st century writer and a contemporary of Paul's, He makes a distinction in his writing between homosexual sex for mere pleasure, which he considered uh, unworthy, and homosexual practice rooted in a committed relationship, which he considered beautiful. The Apostle Paul, who's writing the letter to the Romans, dude was a well-read, well-traveled, well-cultured Roman citizen. He certainly knew about these kind of committed relationships. And yet Paul here, makes no distinction between kinds of homosexual acts. If he wanted to differentiate and specify particular acts, he could have done so. There was language available to him where he could have made that point. But he doesn't do it. Instead, what he issues here is a very categorical and clear denouncement of any and all kinds of homosexuality. He says all those acts, they're all against nature. And so it is clear that in verses 26 and 27, Paul is taking a stance where he says that homosexuality goes against God's design. Now it is important to remember again here that Paul is not picking on homosexuality. What he is doing is he's using it as one of the clearest examples of how we elevate our desires over the creator's design. We say, I want it my way, God, not your way. Now in a minute, we'll come back to the question of homosexuality and we'll talk a little bit more about what all of this means for us going forward. What it means practically. But but before we do that, we need to look at the third example Paul gives of how the tragic exchange plays out in real life. Because this is where it really gets real for all of us in this room today. The third example is actually a list of examples. And it's what's known in the scholarly literature as a vice list. Look at verses 28 through 31. In verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Then in verses 29 to 31, he lists out all the things that ought not to be done that are now being done because of the fall. Look at this list. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, or or you could call it greed, malice, So if you just take this line, these are the seeds of what you might call economic disorder. This is people saying, I do whatever I need to do, whatever I want to do, to get what I want. And this is where all kinds of economic disparities and injustices in the world come from. Paul goes on. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. This is what you could call social disorder. Paul is describing your Facebook feed. He continues, Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. This is spiritual disorder. This is people who in their own pride hate God and boast in themselves and their own powers and come up with all kinds of new creative ways to sin. And then at the end of verse 30, Just in case he left everything out, disobedient to parents. Parents, can I get an amen? (laughs) Here we've got family disorder. The fundamental human relationship of the family starts to break down. And it all climaxes in verse 31 with this rhetorical flourish where Paul sums up the human condition. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. uh. Now this list in verses 29 to 31, it is not an exhaustive survey of all possible sins. What it is, is a sample of the many different ways in which our rebellion against God plays out in real life. But just in this small sample, you have what amounts to economic, social, spiritual, family disorder on top of the sexual disorder we already talked about. This is why theologians talk about the idea of total depravity. Idolatry affects everything at every level. The fall affects us all. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to look closely at this list. And I want you to find your name on it. Don't look for other people. Look for yourself. Look for yourself in this list. Paul's point is that you would see yourself in this list. That you would see your own depravity here. And if you look at it and you say, yeah, I see myself in there, but but what I do, my my gossip or my slander or my covetousness, that's not nearly as bad as what other people are doing. If you say that, you are missing the point of this whole passage. The point is that you would find yourself in here. Not somebody else's. yourself. Because the point is that we are all in this list. The fall affects us all. We are all in here. And we need to see ourselves in here. What Paul is trying to show us in these verses is that our idolatry always leads to corruption. Our idolatry shows up in all these different ways, and our idolatry leads to all these different things. That's how the fall affects us all. We have all rejected God, and now we live in a Romans 1 world. All of us. No exceptions. Every single person in this room. All of us. That is Paul's argument in this section of the letter. The fall affects us all. That's his point. Now here's what that means for all of us here today. Three things. A position, a posture, and a plea. A position, a posture, and a plea. First, a position. Basically, what we've just covered in these these verses... Is the biblical position on everything Paul says here? What we just walked through makes it abundantly clear that everything Paul lists in these verses is sinful and dishonoring to God. The broad sexual impurity of verse 24, the specific sexual impurity of verse 26 and 27, and then the vice list of verses 29 to 31. All of it reveals our idolatry and violates God's original design for how life works best. But here's the thing. In verse 32, Paul says that though we know these things are not right, we not only do them, but we also give approval to those who practice them. Y'all, we live in a day and age where our culture takes a stand that is the polar opposite of Romans 1 on the issue of sexuality broadly and on homosexuality specifically our culture celebrates what god condemns but god in his word is crystal clear that sexual impurity in any form gay or straight is not what he desires for his people god is the author and creator of sex he knows how it works best And he tells us that sex was made for a man and a woman in a covenant relationship of marriage where they are committing their whole selves to each other for the whole of life. And they're embodying that with their bodies as they give themselves to one another. That is God's clear position. And it ought to be ours as well. We as a church we do hold and we must hold to a biblical sexual ethic that says that sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed exclusively in the context of one man and one woman in a lifelong committed relationship. That is the biblical position, and that is our position. Now as I say that, let me again remind us that the central issue here is not our sexual impurity. The central issue is our idolatry. But sexual impurity is a sinful manifestation of that idolatry, and we need to recognize that. That's the position. But that position leads us to a second thing, which is a posture. A posture. We have a tendency to look at these examples that Paul gives here and to single out certain ones that we think are worse than others. But the truth is that all of us are guilty of the same fundamental crime. We stand before the one true God guilty of cosmic rebellion. We have traded the glory of the immortal God for images of created things. And what that means then is that the greatest evil in the world is not homosexuality. The greatest evil in the world is not adultery. The greatest evil in the world is not murder. The greatest evil in the world is rejecting the one true God and substituting him with whatever is in your hand. And all of us have done that. All of us. And that fact ought to produce in every single one of us a tremendous degree of humility before both God and other people. Jesus famously said to worry about the log in your own eye before you try to deal with the speck in someone else's eye. Y'all, we've all got two by fours in our skulls. So we ought to be very gentle and careful when we point out anything we see in anyone else. And so practically, one of the things this means is that we never, please never, please never treat homosexuality as a special category of sinfulness. While the Bible is clear that homosexuality is sinful, the Bible honestly does not give that much attention to it. Jen Wilkin, who's a Bible teacher from Texas, she says that we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about. In the Bible, there is a whisper about homosexuality. It is a clear whisper, to be sure. But it's six passages. It's a whisper. In terms of frequency and intensity, the Bible spends a whole lot more time and energy on a lot of other things. For example... The Bible very clearly shouts about materialism and religious pride. Jesus is deeply compassionate with sexual sinners, but he yells and flips over tables with rich and prideful sinners. He never said it was hard for same-sex attracted people to go to heaven, but he did say that it was harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a materially wealthy or religiously prideful person to get there. And so before we deal with the speck in someone else's eye, we ought to be very careful to pull the two-by-four of pride and materialism out of our own eyes. You feel me? Now for a long time, Christians have gotten it wrong on this front. And I think that much of the current animosity toward Christians who hold a biblical position on sexuality is less a response to the position itself and more a response to the often prideful posture of the people who hold it. Look, If a sinner comes to God's word and reads this book and sees a text like the one we're looking at today and feels conviction and walks away feeling angry with God about their lifestyle, if they have a problem with God over it, okay, I get that. And that's honestly a good thing. This thing's going to call us out on some stuff and it should hurt. But far too often... People can't even hear what the text says because they're so put off by prideful Christians who act morally superior to them. This book is not a butcher's knife to use to carve up LGBTQ people. Don't use it that way. This book is not a butcher's knife. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. And the truth is we all need surgery we all share the same fundamental terminal illness called idolatry. And if we're all in that same predicament, then we ought to be able to sympathize and empathize with others who share our plight. These examples that Paul gives, they are the symptoms of our idolatry. And here's the deal with symptoms. And this is, you could misunderstand what I'm going to say, so so I want to be careful in saying this, but but I think it's important, so i got to say it. Here's the deal with symptoms. In real life, you don't get to choose how the sickness shows up in your life. The fall affects us all, but it affects us all in different ways. And the reality is that for lots of LGBTQ people, They experience their gender and sexuality not so much as a sinful choice, but as an affliction. It's something that they wish they could get rid of and that they've prayed to God to take away. But yet it remains as a symptom of living in a sin-sick world. Now I know that can be misunderstood. And I am not condoning homosexuality here. We've talked about the position. But it's important to recognize that all of us share in the reality of living in a Romans 1 world. All of us. We all have different symptoms of the same fundamental sickness. And when we pridefully forget that fact, and we make being gay the chief of all sins, we do a whole lot of damage to precious people made in the image of our creator. Because we know that we are all guilty of the same fundamental sin of idolatry, Christians, out of all people, ought to be the most humble and sympathetic and compassionate toward those in the LGBTQ community. We have several people in our congregation who identify as gay or same-sex attracted. I've spoken with some of you. And I've heard your stories. I know the unanswered prayers. I know the judgment that you have faced from others. I know the shame you have felt as others have looked at you funny. I know the ways the church has failed to love you. I know how difficult the journey has been for some of you. And I just want to say that today, if you're here and that's you, whether people in our congregation know you and know your story or whether we don't, I just want you to know today that God loves you just as much as he loves me or anyone else sitting in this room today. He loves you and he wants to be at the center of your life. And I want you to know too that we as his people, even though we've done a terrible job of showing it sometimes, I want you to know that we love you too. We love you and we are glad you're here. And if you would let us, we would love to walk alongside you, to walk with you as you wrestle with what all of this means for you and for all of us. If you're the parent of a child here today who who identifies as LGBTQ, we want to walk with you too. We're not experts, but we care. And you need to know that you you need to know that you and your family you are welcome here. Let's figure this out together, okay? So our posture our posture is one of humility. We do not stand in judgment over one another. We stand before the judge humbly alongside one another. That's our posture. And that leads me to the final point, which is a plea, a plea. The fact of the matter as we look at this text today is that the deepest problem in our lives is not our sexuality or any other particular sin. The deepest problem in our lives is our rejection of God. We let go of God and we hold on to other things that can never satisfy We pursue life and satisfaction and meaning in lesser created things. And that pursuit leads us out into the raging current of our own desires. And in verse 32, Paul makes it clear where that river leads. It ultimately ends in death. In a vast separation between us and God, both now and forever. Now I know that sounds bleak. And the fact of the matter, it is bleak. It is. But that's the point that Paul is making in these first few chapters of Romans. Paul wants us to see and to feel the magnitude of the vast separation between us and God. He wants us to see it and feel it so we understand it. Not so that we stay there forever, but so that that he can point us to the even greater magnitude of the great salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Now in the book of Romans, that great salvation... It isn't coming until chapter 5. And we're not going to get to chapter 5 until January. <laughs> but I'm not going to wait till January to offer it to us today. Because the good news is embedded in everything right here in this text today. The language of this text where it speaks of God giving them up. That language comes from the Old Testament. Where God gives his people up to judgment in order that they might see the danger of the situation they're in. And then turn to him for help. God lets them experience the emptiness of their own idolatry and the consequences of their rebellion so they will turn back to the only one who can save them and satisfy them. The book of Romans, it's all about the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us through Christ. And the good news is that God sent Jesus Christ out into the raging current of the river to rescue us. Yes, God gave us up to our sins, but God also gave up his son to our sins in order to save us. The word gave over in this text, it's actually the same word that is used in the gospels for what happened to Jesus when he was arrested and handed over to be crucified. And so in a reversal of our tragic exchange, Jesus offered what theologians call the great exchange. Though he was perfect, he took the full weight of the wrath of God against our rebellion upon himself. He exchanged himself for us. He took the punishment that we deserved so we could have the life that he deserved. That is the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, gay and straight alike. So the plea today that comes from this text, yo, it's to cling to Jesus. Let go of whatever is in your hand and cling to Jesus. Take hold of him. He's the rescue raft. He's the life preserver. He's the only one who can save you. Our fundamental problem is our rejection of God. And so the only solution is to cling to Jesus and restore God to his rightful place at the center of our lives. When you do that, when you cling to him, he'll sort out the rest of it. And it might take some work, and the scalpel of the surgery, it might hurt. But he is good, and he wants the best for you. And he alone can save you and satisfy you. So at the end of the day, there is only one kind of sinner, and there is only one kind of Savior. And trusting that Savior looks the same for all of us, gay and straight alike. It means saying, God, I am sorry for elevating my desires over your will. I am sorry for attempting to define my identity apart from your design for me. I am sorry for taking on myself the authority to call the shots in my life. I am sorry for seeking satisfaction in self-fulfillment rather than in giving glory to you. I recognize that Jesus is Lord And I turn over control of my life to him. Salvation looks the same for all of us. And so today, whether you are gay or straight, male or female, old or young, single or married, rich or poor, black or white, whoever you are and whatever you've done, the plea to you from this text is to cling to Jesus. He alone can save. He alone can satisfy. Cling to Him. Just close your eyes and bow your heads. The band is going to come on and they're going to start to play. And uh, along the sides of the room, there's going to be some of our deacons available for prayer. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but uh, before I do, I want to give you a moment. To be honest with God. What we've talked about this morning has been heavy in a lot of ways. But it's been about all of us. And all of us share the same fundamental affliction. Idolatry. We're all in the same boat. So I want you to think about what is in your hand. What are you holding on to? I want you to think about where you see yourself in that list, where you see yourself in this text in Romans. I want you to take a few moments before the Lord to be honest with him about it. So the band will start to play, and in a minute I will pray to close us and we'll enter into worship. Father, your word is good, even when it hurts. You are the great physician who wields the scalpel of scripture with caring hands. You cut, but the cut is the cut of cure, the cut of healing. We praise you for that today. We stand before you and we confess together the idolatry in our hearts. The ways we worship created things instead of our great God and creator. We acknowledge that before you today, God. In all the many ways that it shows up in our lives, we confess our collective idolatry to you. And I pray for us today, God, that wherever we're at, whatever whatever our um, sin of choice might be, I pray that we would return Jesus to the center of our lives, that we would cling to him, to our great God and Savior, I pray for those in our congregation today, especially who are dealing with sexual sin, general sexual impurity or um, those who are, are same-sex attracted or in same-sex relationships. God, I pray for our people. God, would you minister to them? Would you work, give them hope, give them joy, help them to cling to Christ who is greater than any other treasure we could ever find. Help them to find life in you. I pray that our church would be a place where sinners of all kinds can find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would we hold to a biblical position, but would we do it in a posture of tremendous humility? And would we as your people cling to Jesus always and share him with the world in need? So we give you thanks and praise today in Jesus' name.